The evangelists, or authors of the Gospels, set out very deliberately to show that Christ was the fulfillment of God's promises made in the books of Jeremiah, Isaiah, Malachi, and most of all, Genesis. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. Welcome to Gospel Doctrine and our second episode of our new curriculum with the New Testament. Uh, And as many of you new listeners may be unaware, you are totally invited to send in your questions weekly to gt at gospeltoctrine.com through email, or go on to our Gospel Doctrine Facebook page and send me an inbox message there, and I will give me your first name and your town, and I will read your question on the air. Today's questions come to us from Kendra in Draper. She asks a question about our uh, last lesson in the Old Testament. If God is not a respecter of persons... Now, you may remember one of the evidences that God gave Malachi for the blessing of the Jews was that he, he challenged them to compare themselves to the descendants of Esau. And Jacob, as you remember, and Esau were twins, and Jacob was renamed Israel. And he said, if you don't think it's a blessing to be part of Israel, just look at the descendants of Esau. So Kendra asks, if God is not a respecter of persons, why in Malachi did he give the example of Jacob versus Esau and say, if you don't think God has blessed Israel, look at the descendants of Esau? Uh, We'll be answering that question in today's episode. Um, it's, It's surprisingly apropos for the first lesson in the New Testament. And it has to do with the idea of that is one of the one of the most common and most prevalent themes throughout all of the Gospels, which is the last shall be first and the first shall be last. It, that's a very sacred and profound idea that has a number of different interpretations, and we'll talk about a couple of them, uh, or at least my my opinion on a couple of them uh, in today's lesson. Kendra's other question is, why are there two genealogies for Jesus, one in Matthew and one in Luke? Why did two different evangelists or two different gospel authors find it necessary to give a, a genealogy of Jesus, and why were they different? Uh, and we'll discuss that as well. We'll discuss, well, I'll discuss uh, Luke's genealogy right now, and then we're going to go straight to Matthew as we be- begin our lesson. So in Luke chapter 3, which is skipping forward a little bit uh, from, from today's lesson, there is a genealogy of Jesus through Mary. And, um, well, let me, let me back up a little farther. As we, as we read the Gospels, it's important to understand that these, each of these writers had their own purpose. They were pioneering what we know today as the, as the art of the biography. And they were, in, in, in fact, in Luke, he describes specifically his methodology. And we talked about this in the last episode. Luke said, I've, I've talked to, number one, there's been, a, there's been a ton of work already done around this, and there's been many people, and, the, and he uses the word many. This, these are in the first four v- verses of Luke, chapter one. He talks about exactly what he set out to do and why. And he's writing to someone called Theophilus, which may be a title or maybe a name. And it may be he's writing a general letter to someone who's a lover of God, which is the meaning of Philosophus or Theophilus, uh, but it also might be that Theophilus is an actual person who's sponsoring Luke's work. 
So Luke says, Theophilus, listen, I know that you want to believe in Jesus, and therefore I've set out to do this, and I know that there's a lot of people who've already, who've already claimed to have written the truth about Jesus. But what I did was I went around and talked to all the eyewitnesses of Jesus' life and to the, to the keepers of the word, the servants of the word, as it's rendered in one translation. And uh, we, we don't necessarily understand today what it's like to live in an oral culture. But in an oral culture, the, the servant of the word was someone who was the best teller of a particular story. So if there's an episode of Jesus's life that one person remembers better than anyone else, that person became the servant of that word. And if, and if a stranger in town came along and started asking questions about that story, people would say, see that guy over there? He's who you want to talk to. Go talk to or that woman over there, the old woman. She remembers uh, the day that Jesus came to town. And that's how, that's how Luke would have gathered his information. Number one, he would have based it on previous written accounts, possibly. And number two, we know for sure that he would have talked to all the eyewitnesses that he could. Now, Matthew, on the other hand, was himself an eyewitness. Nevertheless, there is plenty of evidence that there were a lot of episodes of Jesus' life covered in the Gospel of Matthew for which Matthew was not present. Uh, specifically, anything before chapter 9 where Matthew was called as a disciple— uh, he probably wouldn't have seen himself. So Matthew either gathered that information at the time or later on felt the need uh, to write his own gospel. The evidence seems to to show that Mark was the first evangelist, at least the first that uh, whose work was canonized in what we have as the New Testament. Now, as Luke said, there were plenty of accounts, and there's no reason to doubt this. There could have been many, many accounts of Jesus, and some of some of which were probably inspired and lost. Some of them were probably uninspired, and um, we actually have a few apocryphal books. Other other apostles, they have gospels attributed to them, like the Gospel of James, the Gospel of Thomas, and others. And so, um, anyway, the, there, are, there are books that are written about Jesus that we just simply don't have, and, and Luke references that they exist without calling them by name. And also, in addition to all this, they all, each, each gospel writer has their own purpose that drives them. If Luke th- thought, and now, as I said, there's evidence that Mark began, and then Luke and Matthew had access to Mark as they wrote their own gospels. But if they thought that Mark had done it perfectly, neither of them would have engaged in the amount of work required to write what amounted to a biography of Jesus. And Matthew, in particular, is one of the longest books in the New Testament. It's, it's, a, it's a prodigious undertaking. So why, they would not have gone to that much work had they, had they felt like Mark had gotten it exactly right or had accomplished everything that was required to accomplish. And then the same thing is with John. John is probably last or definitely last of the Gospels to be written. The order is not 100% known between uh, Matthew and Luke. It seems that uh, both of them came after Mark and before John. And uh, interestingly enough, it's Matthew and Luke that we're studying today, the first chapter of each. And I'm not 100% sure that this is fair for me to say this, but uh, I have we have a ton to cover today, and so I'm going to go a little bit longer than I normally would. And I think a good place probably for... You, so if you if you don't have time, if you have the normal amount of time rather than extra time to listen to today's podcast, um, I think a good place to break is where we switch from talking about Matthew chapter 1 to talking about Luke chapter 1. But anyway, I'm, I offer 
the extra content without apology because uh, there's just too much to cover. And because we're not in a, a church setting where we have a set time and I can go as long as I want to, uh, you're a captive audience. So obviously feel free to turn off the recording whenever you want to. But I hope that um, even if you listen to it in two parts, I, I really did save the best for last. So try to, over the course of the next several days, uh, try to listen to all of it. And uh, I promise to make it worth your while. So what was Matthew's purpose? Um, let's, let's begin by talking about, let's jump right into the lesson and talk about Matthew chapter 1. Uh, a lot of, well, I'll, I'll make reference quickly to Luke. It seems like Luke was a, a Gentile convert. And so a lot of people theorize that he was writing primarily to an audience of Gentiles and trying to convince them that Jesus was the Christ without them having access to Jewish history and culture and maybe even the language. So Matthew, on the other hand, was not only uh, an observant Jew, but possibly even a prominent Jew, and then was despised when he took a post in the, the government of Herod Antipas as a tax collector. And anybody who sided with the Romans and helped to enforce their laws as uh, as Matthew was doing, he was collecting taxes for them, uh, was despised and was even called a, uh, some uh, an apostate, someone who was breaking the covenant. So um, Jesus was, in fact, ridiculed for dining with publicans and sinners when he called Matthew to be his disciple. But Matthew was a faithful Jew and was very steeped in the scriptures. And we can tell this right from chapter one. So the first thing that Matthew does is he says um, the the genealogy of Jesus the Christ of Jesus the Messiah was what, this is how the genealogy or yeah as they, as they puts it in the in the King James version the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah or Jesus Christ happened like this and then he beginning with Abraham he traces the lineage of Christ and he he even calls Jesus Christ or Jesus Messiah the son of David and the son of Abraham. So right there we can tell a little bit about Matthew's purpose, which was to establish for a Jewish audience the bona fides of Jesus Christ. He was it, it was well known to everyone, any Jew who'd studied this. First of all, the 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 Old Testament had prophesied that a Messiah would come, and it was well known it would be a descendant of Abraham and a descendant of David because of the covenants of each the eponymous covenants of Abraham and David. So the Abrahamic covenant was uh, that by his, through his seed shall all the kindreds of the earth be blessed. And it was understood that that, among other things, meant that the Messiah would come through his line. And David was promised that explicitly, you will have a kingdom forever and there will be a king whose kingdom shall, uh, and, and I will raise you up a king whose kingdom shall never die. So both Abraham and David had been promised this. And so in the very first book, uh, or in the very first verse of Matthew, Matthew is trying to establish this, and he lets, it, lets us know very clearly that he is going to prove to a Jewish audience, someone familiar with the Old Testament, and exactly how God had promised throughout the centuries to fulfill uh, his covenants. He was going to convince Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. And in, in the days of Matthew, and perhaps uh, for even a couple of days or a couple of decades after the time of Jesus Christ's ministry, Christians would not have considered themselves 
uh, part of a religion of uh, of any other religion other than Judaism. They would not have considered themselves to be any new religion. They would have thought, we're Jews, and it's other Jews who are failing to see that that this promised figure in their religion has made his appearance. And so what we have to do is show Jews that, that the Messiah has come. But they would not have seen themselves as forming a splinter group or a splinter religion or an offshoot of Judaism that would be called Christianity eventually. Uh, that was not even contemplated by a Jewish audience, perhaps for some time. So Matthew, that's also very clear in the book of Matthew. So he goes through several verses of talking about um, you know, this person begat this person, and eventually ends up with Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. So, um, right away, we, we know two things. Number one, that Jesus, through Joseph, is a descendant of David and Abraham. And number two, that uh, that Joseph, and then we, we learn about how uh, in, in the next few verses, we learn about how Jesus wasn't actually Joseph's son, but he was his stepson. And that's an interesting distinction that we'll talk about in a second. But the point is, uh, Jesus, through Joseph, had a direct line of descent from David and would have been a perfectly legitimate choice if Israel was a kingdom at the time rather than a protectorate of of the Roman Empire, Jesus would have been a perfectly legitimate choice to be the king. Uh, and and through uh, through Jewish, it's not really a mystery that through Jewish custom, this this business of being a stepson wouldn't have mattered um, because Joseph was married to uh, Jesus's mother. He could have been considered a legitimate son. He could have been a, considered a legitimized son. Even, even if it were believed, and this is, this is one of the key aspects of the story as well, even if it were believed that Jesus wasn't Joseph's son, which wasn't generally believed. And that's part of, uh, that's one of the aspects of the story that we don't think about because this, the story of the birth of Jesus Christ is full of adult themes, and yet all of us learn this story as children. And so unless we make a conscious effort, we kind of have locked this story into our minds and its state that we learned it as kids, and we don't realize that uh, there's a lot more going on. Uh, specifically, Mary was suspected by everyone of having cheated on Joseph. Uh, so we talked a little bit about what it was like to live in an oral culture, an oral tradition. Let's talk about now what it was like to live in a tradition of arranged marriage. So a very, very uh, traditional Jewish culture dominated the ancient land of Judea, Samaria, and especially uh, a small town like Nazareth was. Archaeologists estimate there were maybe 500 people living there around the time of Christ. So a small town where everybody knew everyone else's business is perhaps even just a few tribes or clans that had made their dwelling there, and, and so everyone knew everyone. And in that kind of a culture, uh, the the choice of whom to marry does not generally devolve upon the people who are going to get married. Um, and we can, we can guess, we don't have an exact account of when, when Joseph and Mary were uh, quote-unquote espoused or when they were betrothed to each other, but there would have been some sort of ceremony. First of all, they would have, as children, 
been brought together by the parents. And we learn later in the, uh, in the genealogy of Luke that Mary and Joseph differ only by a couple of generations. In other words, they were first cousins. And um, so this, this lineage of Jesus Christ through, through Joseph, it's also the lineage of, of Jesus Christ through Mary. Um, and Mary's father and Joseph's father were brothers. So it's really the same lineage, right? And Joseph Smith, or uh, not Joseph Smith, <laughs> Jesus Christ had the same, uh, had, the, had the blood of David from his mother, the earthly blood, as well as the outward appearance of having the uh, descendancy of David through his, through his father or stepfather, depending on whom you believe. But the point is, most people wouldn't have believed that Jesus wasn't Joseph's son. They would have seen the fact that Mary showed up as pregnant after being espoused to Joseph, after being uh, intended for him from an early age. And then when they were early teenagers, they would have been brought together in a ceremony that was uh, what we would call an engagement ceremony, but was much more serious. And then they would have been put on a timeline where at this age, this is going to happen. At this age, this is going to happen. And at this age, you will actually move in together and be married. But it's a it was a several a multi-step process at no point of which could either of them exercise a choice and say no i actually want to marry someone else their their course was set and they were intended for each other in a way that is much more serious than what would we that what we would call engagement and so uh right right here in the first part or the second part of the uh, first chapter of matthew um, we, we read this verse, verse 18. The birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. When, as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Now, this is one, uh, this is one perhaps, hint uh, that, that maybe Matthew was writing his gospel after Luke because Luke wrote the story of how uh, Mary received her revelation and maybe Luke thought, or maybe Matthew thought, that that story had been told sufficiently, and he's filling it a little more detail. Uh, on the other hand, Mark doesn't include any story at all about the birth of Jesus, and it's interesting to think that each successive gospel might have filled in more and more detail about the past. So Matthew might have talked a little bit about the birth of Jesus and the the controversy that surrounded the pregnancy, and then Luke would have gone even farther back and talked about his conception and then the conception of John the Baptist. And finally, John goes the farthest back of all and says, um, the, the beginning of the story of Christ is not anywhere near that. It's actually in the beginning. And he begins his gospel with the same words that begin the entire Bible, which is in the beginning, meaning when the world was created. That's when John sees the beginning of the story of Christ. So, uh, and I know from my own experiences in writing, and I've and, and in the writing courses that I've taken, a very common struggle that writers have is to figure out. They they often know the ending. They often know the important events of a story that they're coming up with, but it's difficult to know where the beginning of that story is. And uh, there are different methods that can be used to say, well, if this if these are the important events of the climax of the story, here's how you find what the beginning of the story is. If if you're writing the story. Uh, you have to choose from the ending. You have to choose the beginning. Well, interestingly enough, that's the same problem that these evangelists had. They're trying to choose where the beginning of the story is because all they have are a bunch of facts, and they have to 
pick which one is the most relevant to start. So Matthew picks this episode when uh, Joseph finds, finds out that his espoused wife is pregnant. And he talks about how Joseph was, and this, we're now in verses 18 and 19 of Matthew 1. Joseph is, is considering his life. He looks forward to his life and he thinks, gosh, uh, I'm not going to move forward with this. Uh, she's obviously been with another man. It hurts. And it's a testament to, to Joseph's character. That, and so it even says in verse 19, being a just man, not willing to make her a public example, which was his right. Um, Joseph had been humiliated, and it probably was widely known that it's not something that Mary can hide, especially from rumor. It's not something she can hide that she was pregnant. And Joseph was humiliated, but he didn't want to make her a public example. And so he was going to put her away, meaning he was going to divorce her. And that's what this put her away means. He he was going to, he had a legal uh, means now of getting out of this marriage contract. She'd breached the contract, and so he was free now to uh, search for a wife elsewhere, as you would expect, right? Uh, but, but then Joseph has a vision. While he thought on these things, in verse 20 it says, Behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream. So he has a vision in which he is instructed that he should not divorce Mary, but that he should accept what has happened because Mary has not been unfaithful to him. We'll get into a little bit more about how the the two of them must have felt about all everything going on, especially Mary's. We get a lot more of Mary's viewpoint in the first chapter of Luke. But the point is, uh, Joseph, first of all, was acting in a kind way and being compassionate on someone that had, from in his perspective, had mistreated him, even though uh, they'd known each other for years and and had been expecting to get married their whole lives, and then all of a sudden, uh, she's, in, from what he would have guessed, she stepped out on him and conceived a child, and then not, and then lied to him about it. Right? He's thinking, why is she telling me that it's, you know, she hasn't cheated on me? Uh, this doesn't feel good. I'm going to, um, I'm going to be nice to her, but I'm leaving the situation. And that's when he gets a. Uh, a vision similar to Mary's vision in which he's told that it, this is from the Holy Ghost and that he's going to call his name Jesus. So we have a few things now to talk about. Number one is this, this word in the very first uh, verse, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ. Now, the, the generation and uh, other, tra- other translations have it as genealogy is a, a Greek word that you may find familiar, which is genesis or genesis. It is the exact word that is used for the first book in the Old Testament, or what Jesus would have known as the Hebrew Scriptures or just the Scriptures or the Tanakh. So uh, Matthew is telling us that this is the genesis or the origin of Jesus Christ. In other words, uh, you and I, when we go, th- there's there's almost no kind of movie that is more common these days than a, than a superhero movie, right? A comic book story. And the favorite, the favorite kind of story that a studio can get as an origin story of of some comic book hero that's never been told before because everyone wants to hear about the origin and that's that's what this is this is what that's what uh, Matthew's saying is this is an origin story of someone who whom you all know well who whom whose story is very familiar to you I'm going to tell you about his origins his genesis well interestingly enough we get down to verse 18. 
And you can do that. You can find this out for yourself if you go into BibleHub.com and you pull up uh, the whole chapter, and you can see if if instead of if you pull up Matthew chapter one, and instead of the verse by verse, you click on the chapter Matthew one, you will see five different translations in parallel going down, scrolling down the page. And if you if you click on any of the individual verse numbers, then you can click on the word Greek in the in the navigation at the top, and it will take you to a Greek version of that verse, and you can see exactly what the original Greek was for all of these uh, in for all of these verses in uh, what, the translation that each of them used originally. So, the word in verse eighteen, the birth of Jesus Christ, surprisingly enough, is that same word genesios, which uh, is has been accurately rendered as birth and has been accurately rendered as generation or genealogy earlier in the chapter. So in English, there are two different ideas. The generation of Jesus Christ, the generation of Jesus, the Messiah, is one idea, and it is genealogy. And the birth of Jesus Christ is a separate idea. But in Greek, both of these ideas are expressed with one word, genesis. or and Meaning origin, meaning... Um, well, the, the word has come to be a word in English now, at Genesis as well. And that word would have carried all the connotations in Greek that we can feel when we hear the word Genesis. And Matthew would have found it very appropriate to use the same word for both of these ideas. And that, that those connotations are lost because the words we have are generation and, and birth, right? But what, what Matthew was saying was that much as Genesis contains the origins of the world itself and of humanity, here I'm showing you the origins of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ as a son of David and Abraham, and Jesus Christ as a son of Mary and Joseph. So we'll talk a little bit more about what he was trying to accomplish with this word Genesis as we go. And, and then we have a, a second idea, which is that uh, in verse 20, Joseph is told that that which is in Mary is of the Holy Ghost. That which is conceived in Mary is of the Holy Ghost. Now, Matthew would have been sensitive to, uh, he would have been very sensitive to a particular trope, if you will, in Greek mythology, in, in all the mythology of the surrounding cultures. And that you are probably aware of this trope as well, uh, without being without being aware of it. Which is, you read the story and you think, oh, a virgin birth. Um, Mary was the mother to the Son of God, and because you were raised with this idea, you can't quite understand how someone of Matthew's time would have received it. But think about this: in Greek culture, which was the dominant culture. That, that had taken over the Roman, or that had, the Roman Empire had inherited and then spread throughout all the ancient Near East, it was such a common story, mythologically, to hear about one of the gods coming to earth and conceiving a child with a mortal woman. If you've ever read any Greek mythology, you'll know that all of the heroes of Greek mythology, Hercules and Perseus and Theseus, the, you know, Hercules who, who slayed the Hydra and and Perseus who slayed the Kraken, and Theseus who slayed the Minotaur, they were all, uh, 
they were all sons of Zeus that with mortal women, and he had seduced them through trickery. He had come down in some form or other, and uh, and then seduced them, and then uh, tried you know trying to hide from his heavenly wife, and then uh, the child had grown up because of the power that he inherited from his divine father had grown up to do great things. And so Matthew is being very careful to distinguish the story of Jesus Christ from these stories which he, he had to be aware of in the surrounding mythology, which were that, you know, God often seduces mortal women and then produces children with them. And uh, both their heavenly both the heavenly spouse of the God and the earthly spouse of the mother are going to be upset by what's going on, and yet the, uh, the child is going to grow up and be exceptional. And so Matthew, in trying to distinguish this, rather than saying what that, that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost, and Luke does the same thing, or uh, is of God, is the child of God, the literal child of God, what he's saying is it's conceived of the Holy Ghost. And one of the means that he uses to distinguish this, to show us that he, he's making clear, look, this is not a story about sex. This is not a story where God has had sex with a mortal woman and is conceiving a child. And he uses this word, Genesis, to show, and the, and the, the image of the Holy Spirit, and we'll talk a little bit in a second about what, how and why, but he's using these images to show that this is a different story than what you've heard in all this Greek mythology. And first of all, uh, he's he's making there's a very human face on all of this, right? It's the fact that Joseph is thinking, "Wow, my wife has cheated on me." This is a, these are real people. And secondly, um, what do we read about? What do we read about in the book of Genesis before there is life? Right? The the world is in what in what form? Uh, the the Hebrew words are tohu vavohu, which means uh, in the King James Version, formless and void, or as we've rendered it here, wild and waste. It's a place that cannot support life, but on the waters, it's this watery expanse of nothingness. And on the waters moves what? If you go back to Genesis and read, the, the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And it's tied up with this idea of the, the ruach, or the breath of God, giving life to something which is lifeless. It's dirt plus breath gives life. The spirit of God is capable of imbuing a mortal, mortal matter with life, and even human life, even consciousness and spirit and, and form and purpose. And sonship, uh, descendants from God, right? And um, so... That's the idea that Matthew is trying to get across, and Matthew is very steeped in these old in the in the Hebrew scriptures, and he's saying, uh, the, "There's a virgin who has never known a man." In other words, it's a place where where life has not been created and cannot be created. It's similar to this this expanse that existed, this watery expanse that is wild and waste. It's some place where no no growth can occur, and upon this upon this expanse has moved the spirit of God. And so the, the distinction that Matthew is drawing is, don't think of this as a story of Zeus and a story of sex and of, illicit, of especially illicit sex where uh, there's been some scandalous act. What, what Matthew is saying is, this is instead, this is a story of creation. 
In the same way that God created the world, this is a holy story of creation with the Spirit in, in a place that was lifeless beforehand. And uh, now let's talk about the name. Both uh, in, in the book of Luke, in Luke chapter 1, Mary is told the name of Jesus. And then here in Matthew chapter 1, Joseph is also told the name of Jesus. And Jesus comes, uh, let's talk a little bit about the etymology of Jesus. It's the same name, and Jesus would have been named in Hebrew. And it's the same name in the book of Joshua. Joshua's name was actually changed from Oshea, which means salvation, to Yehoshua, which means Jeho- which means Jehovah or Yahweh, plus salvation. Or Yahweh is salvation, or the salvation of Yahweh. That, that is what the name Yehoshua means. And uh, if, you, if you say that name fast enough, if you, if you repeat it to yourself a bunch, you'll find that the natural tendency is to shorten it. And over the centuries, even perhaps um, just a couple of generations, this, this name began to be expressed Yeshua. And so in, uh, in Jesus' time, his name was probably pronounced Yeshua, and he was probably given the name Yehoshua. And through the translation first into Latin languages, um, well, first into Latin itself or Greek, then this would have been rendered as, as Jesus, and then as Jesus, and then finally into English as Jesus. But it's the exact same name is, is Yeshua, and it means Yahweh saves. So both uh Joseph and Mary are told, this is the name of your child, Yahweh saves. The God of the Old Testament is salvation. That's the message that this baby is meant to bring. Now, what, is, uh, what, does, what does the angel tell, and what does Matthew report that the angel tells Joseph about the name? This is important to read. In verse 21 of uh, Matthew chapter 1, here's uh, Joseph still in his dream, still in his vision about why he should marry Mary, instead of divorcing her. And uh, the angel tells Joseph, and, and she shall bring forth a son, thou shalt call his name Jesus. And here's important, the important part. For he shall save his people from their sins. Now, what does the name Jesus means? It means Yahweh saves. Well, wait a minute. Um, here in this verse, what? What is what is he going to do? He's going to save his people from their sins. Wait a minute. Who's going to save? Yahweh is going to save. But in this in this sentence it says he. In other words, Jesus. Who's going to save his people? Yahweh saves or Yahweh? So do you do you understand from this question, from the very name and the way that Matthew expresses this? This the word for, the word meaning because is very key here. His name is Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Who's going to save? Yahweh or Yahweh saves? The answer is yes. Matthew is making a very bold claim to anyone who understands both Hebrew and the Hebrew scriptures that God himself has been born into flesh. Right? So, uh, that, that all comes from this one verse 21. Matthew goes on further to qualify this, to make this claim even more boldly. Uh, he says, All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, 
And now we now this is a, a reference to Isaiah chapter 7. Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Now in Matthew or in Isaiah chapter 7, one of the kings was given a, a prophecy that he'd be victorious, and he said, Do you want a sign? And this king, this wicked king of Israel, in Isaiah's time, said, I'm not going to tempt God by asking for a sign. And Isaiah says, okay, if you're not going to ask for a sign, I'll give you a sign. A virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and Israel will be victorious. And, uh, and he shall call his name Emmanuel, meaning God with us. This is one of the promises. And, and then the rest of the book of Isaiah, it never talks about uh, a, a virgin actually conceiving and bearing a son. This is one of the promises that is never fulfilled. We'll talk about that in a moment. So, uh, verse 24, Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, and took unto him his wife, and knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. So, uh, that final verse, and he knew her not, means he didn't consummate the marriage. In other words, well, let's let's examine this for a, for a minute. Um, Joseph, as a as a as a husband in a patriarchal society, he could have insisted on his right as a husband to consummate the marriage as soon as he wanted. But what he, what had he been told in his dream? He'd been told this is done so that a virgin, so that it might be fulfilled, where a virgin will conceive and bear a son. And if he consummates the marriage before she, before Mary gives birth, then it's not a virgin birth. So. The way I read this is Joseph was every bit as committed to what God was trying to accomplish in, in, uh, in choosing Mary and in uh, sending Jesus to earth through Mary as Mary was. Joseph was willing to make personal sacrifices, that of his reputation and that of his own comfort and that of his own, uh, in the way he thought his life would turn out, by the way he treated Mary and the, and the choices that he made in order to accomplish the purposes of God. So let's examine now this, uh, this claim that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, right? If, you, if, you're, if you're following along in the first chapter of Matthew, so uh, you may remember that a very common uh, style of Hebrew poetry is to bookend something. We call it chiasmus, where the first and the last element are the same, and then the second element and the second to last element are the same. And it's sort of this nested poetic structure. And um, there's something similar to that going on in this, in this naming of Jesus Christ as Emmanuel in the first chapter of Matthew. Because if you go to the very last chapter of Matthew, which is chapter 28, then you see that uh, one of the very last things that Jesus says to his disciples is, um, well, we're going to talk in a minute about who is actually his people. When, uh, when, Joseph is re- when it's revealed to Joseph that Jesus' name should be Yahweh saves, for he shall save his people from their sins. That's, a, that's the whole message. And who are his people? Well, it, it was just revealed to us. The Jesus Christ is a child of Abraham and David. Matthew very much wants his audience to know that Jesus is a, is a Jew. He's of the tribe of Abraham. And his people are Jews. That would have been very clear from, from this. 
And so Gentiles reading this would have thought, well, oh man, that, you know, is, is Jesus's salvation not extended to me? And, uh, and we'll, we'll discuss kind of the, the meanings that Matthew is intending by what he's saying. But in the final verses of Matthew, the last two, the last two verses of Matthew 28, 19 and 20 are, uh, Jesus saying to his disciples after his resurrection, he says, go ye therefore and teach all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. So when when these when all nations, in other words, all the Gentiles, all of humanity, when they observe the things that God has commanded, they are following the law. And the word for law in Hebrew is Torah. And the defining characteristic of a Jew is the Torah. Is their, is their commitment to the law of God. Jesus is saying, take, take the law, take the, the, the covenants that we know about, including baptism, and take the law and take them to all nations. Extend what you know to everyone. And finally, he's saying, and lo, I am with you always. And now here in the King James Version, even unto the end of the world, or in most translations, I am with you always, to the end of the age, meaning to the end of this, you know, the way, the way that things are, the current state of things, the human, the human world, the fallen world that you live in. I'm with you always. Who is with them? Jesus is with them. How did Matthew begin his story? By saying, God with us is born to Mary. So again, Matthew is making this bold claim about who Jesus is. Jesus is saying, I am with you always. And uh, so let's talk a little bit about what it means for Jesus to say, or for, for Matthew to say, he, he shall save his people from their sins. Uh, what we, we asked this question last time, and I'm going to give you a partial answer. But I still want anybody who is listening and intrigued by this, I still want you to research this. There are probably a dozen I'm going to give you my impression of one answer, but there are probably a dozen valid, legitimate answers to this question. And that question was, what is the New Testament? In other words, if the Old Testament was was some covenant that God had with his people, why does there need to be another covenant? And what is that covenant? And why... What relationship does it have to the old one? So why did the why did the compilers, the editors of the New Testament, why did they start calling the the Hebrew Scriptures the Old Testament? And then they why did they name their new works of Scripture the New Testament? So we're going to talk about that right now. And the first thing we would say is I would say is uh, the story of his people. When we talk about uh, Jesus Christ, when it says he shall save his people from their sin, the word sin. Uh, is a there are a number of ways to express this, right? There's transgression and there's iniquity, but there's also the word sin. The word sin means moral failure. So if we want to understand what Jesus is saving his people from, we look back in the Old Testament and we find the failures that happened. Then the first failure from, and this is from the perspective of Matthew's audience, which is the, the contemporary Jew in the time of Jesus and a little bit after. The first failure is the Garden of Eden. Here, here is the creation, and humans have been created in the image of God, and their mission is to spread God's goodness by trusting in his definition of goodness and evil rather than eating this fruit. And 
what was the what was the result of that? That was a failure, right? The humans didn't trust the de- God's definition of good and evil. They trusted their own. It led to so much sin and so much iniquity. This failure, sin, led to iniquity, led to bad choices by people to the point where God had to destroy them through the flood. That was what happened with all of humanity. This is before there were any such things as Jews or or a nation of Israel or any Abrahamic covenant. So all of humanity was initially chosen and created in the image of God and called to follow God's law, and that was a failure. And then God tries another tactic, which is to select one particular tribe. And he says, okay, the tribe of Abraham, I'm going to make a covenant with you that in this tribe, in in Abraham's seed, everyone will be blessed. And specifically with Jacob, he says, and then in, and then as he's leading the the descendants of Jacob out of Egypt, and he, he gathers them by Mount Sinai, and he says, I'm going to make you a light to the world. You're going to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, uh, and I'm going to give you the land of Canaan, and you're going to show everyone what it's like to, to follow God and the blessings that come. And so here's a little bit of an answer to uh, the question we had at the beginning, which was, um, if God is n- not a respecter of persons, then why would he point to the example of Jacob versus Esau? And the answer is, it's one of God's tactics in bringing people back to him, bringing this failed experiment, if you will, of humanity, and not failed through God's agency, but failed through man's agency. He's going to bring this failed experiment back to himself is by choosing one particular tribe and and showing to the rest of people how they can be blessed by just worshiping one God and have no other gods before him. And now, the the Book of Mormon is where we read that God is not a respecter of persons. And one of the the things that that means is, in the final analysis, God will take into account uh, the fact that you weren't born into the tribe of Israel and you never heard the truth, or you weren't born into um, a country where you could even hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, and God is going to say, yeah, you didn't have access to my truth, and therefore you're not held accountable for the things you didn't know, and I prepared a way where everyone could be redeemed. So God isn't a respecter of persons in that sense, but in the sense of trying to redeem the earth, he's definitely working through one person here, one prophet here, one means here, uh, and in the case of Israel, an entire people here. So he chooses individual instruments in his hands, and they may or may not be effective. So what happened in his second effort with the people of Israel? Again, it's a failure. They are wicked from almost from the moment they enter into the land of Canaan. Third, God's third attempt. He tries. He he makes a covenant with David, the king, who is uh, begins initially, and his son Solomon. They begin initially very spiritual, very very powerful, and very blessed. And he says, I'm going to establish this line of kings, and, it, and as long as they're faithful to me, they will be protected from all sorts of military and political challenges that should surround them, from anyone who would declare themselves their enemy. They, will, they won't have to worry about anything, as long as they trust in me and love me. And what was the result of this experiment? Again, failed. So the, the, the first covenant, the... Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, they were all failures. And yet there are all these promises. And, and, and the, 
the promises get more and more specific. First, humanity, right? The, the first promise was made to all of humanity. The second promise was made to the line of Abraham. And this is what is meant by the, la- the first shall be last and the last shall be first. One of the things that is meant, you can find this theme throughout the scriptures. And when someone is first given the truth and then rejects it, then they're probably going to be the last people to hear it a second time, to get another chance. And then someone else hears it, and the, the last shall be first. So in other words, the, those people who got the truth last will probably be the first to get a second chance. Interestingly enough, and uh, that's not the only meaning that you can find for the phrase, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. There are a lot of different meanings for this phrase. And I, I would, uh, if, if you want an interesting line of study, I would just, I would just research all the different fulfillments for that phrase throughout the scriptures and especially throughout the New Testament, because you'll learn a ton about how God, number one, how he's not a respecter of people. And number two, about exactly what repentance means. But, um, for the purposes of this lesson today, that's that's kind of one of the meanings, one of the main meanings. So Israel, God fails three times with the with the people of Israel, and the result is exile, and that's kind of the ending of the Hebrew Scriptures. And there are all these promises of how they're going to be redeemed from exile, how there's going to be a a wonderful day when there's a new Jerusalem and a new there's a new birth of of God's blessings and a new creation and it never happens. In all the Hebrew scriptures, it's just this dangling promise. And then Matthew says, according to Matthew, Jesus arrives on the scene. And all of these promises now, he's saying, he's showing, he's showing a Jewish audience who's been waiting for the last, the last chapter in their scriptures. He says, all of these promises now have a means of being fulfilled because the Messiah has been born. Look, Look at all the ways in which Jesus fulfills this. And it's even better than you think. It's not just a Davidic king, but it's Yahweh saves and it's Yahweh himself. It's Emmanuel, God with us, and Jesus is saying, I am with you. He's showing us in all of the ways he can that Jesus is not just the Messiah, but God himself. Now, I wish we had a little more time to discuss all of the different promises in the Old Testament, but if you want some extra credit, and I think there are a lot of people who do, because in my, uh, today I went to uh, Sunday school, and in my Sunday school class, in my ward, everyone was discussing, and obviously that was the topic of the lesson, how can we be responsible for our own learning? Everyone was discussing all the ways in which they could meet that challenge to be responsible for their own learning. So if you want some extra credit, here's something that you can think about for this, for this week. And I'll give you some scriptures here to read. Um, first of all, Deuteronomy chapter 30. Now, basically what you're looking for are the promises of God to the people of Israel, the, his followers. It doesn't have to be specifically Israel. It's anyone who wants to follow him, right? But in, the, in, the case, in this particular case, he's talking to the people of Israel. And uh, so look, look in these chapters for the promises of God and how they, and think about how they failed and think about how uh, the Jewish people might've been waiting for these to be fulfilled at some future date. First of all, in Deuteronomy chapter 30. Uh, secondly, Ezekiel chapter 36. If you recall, we've, we've discussed that chapter a number of times. It's where God says, I'm going to write the, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to change the, the, 
the stony heart of my people for a heart made of flesh. Um, Isaiah chapter 7, and that's again the chapter where uh, God says, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. In Isaiah, and, and you can actually, the entire second half of the book of Isaiah is filled with these promises, but uh, specifically a couple of places that I that I noticed um, in forty in chapter forty three of Isaiah, Isaiah starts talking about a new thing that God will do, and God is foreshadowing. So in the tradition of the best stories, right, the the ending is sort of hinted at before you get there, and even though the Old Testament is kind of a story that is without a completion, it's foreshadowed, and this foreshadowing includes a new thing that God is going to do. In the book of Jeremiah, it's referred to as no longer will the, uh, no longer will men swear and say, as the Lord liveth who brought our fathers out of Egypt, but as the Lord liveth that brought uh, that returned us from exile. So Jeremiah is talking about a future day when God will do something even greater than he's done in the past. In other words, this this exodus, this defining moment in the history of Israel is going to be just a symbol for the salvation we'll see in the latter day. And the latter day can mean anything later than the Old Testament. And uh, Isaiah has a similar theme in chapter 43. He talks about a new thing that he will do. You can read that chapter and find out what that means. In Isaiah 49, it talks about the restoration of Israel. And there's one specific verse that says, how can I forget you? You think I've forgotten you? I've engraved you on the palms of my hands. That's a very interesting verse. And then in, uh, after, after the messianic, the most messianic chapters of Isaiah 52 and 53, Isaiah chapter 54 talks about how God has hidden, you know, in, in my anger, in my wrath, I hid my face from you for a short time, but with great compassion will I, will I show mercy on you forever. So God is talking about how his punishments are temporary, but his love is forever. That's Isaiah chapter 54. So we have Deuteronomy 30, Ezekiel 36, Isaiah 7, 43, 49, and 54. And then the final chapter we'll we'll talk about, we'll spend a little bit of time on this, um, and we'll read from this chapter. It's Jeremiah chapter 31, but we're going to do that at the end. So now let's move to, we, t- we just, and we spent most of our time now talking about Matthew chapter 1. Let's move to Luke chapter 1. And uh, I'll try to cover it as quickly as possible, but um, some powerful, powerful story elements here as well. So, um, the first of all, there's an obvious parallel. We, we get the story of the conception of John the Baptist. And here's this old priest, Zacharias, he's in the temple, and his wife is also from a priestly line, but the the relatives of Joseph and presume or of Mary and of and presumably of Joseph as well, since Joseph and Mary are cousins, but maybe not. Maybe they're on Mary's mother's side. In any case, uh, Zacharias is in the temple. He's an old man. He's childless, and his wife is old as well, probably gone through menopause. And an angel appears. It's the same angel that appears all over the all over the place in. Uh, in these first chapters of the New Testament, it's Gabriel. And he says to, but this is chronologically, at least, this is the first appearance of Gabriel. And he says to Zacharias, he says, Zacharias, today's your lucky day. I bring you glad tidings. Now, we've talked a lot about what this this word means. And an angel bringing glad tidings is, 
generally, I haven't I haven't discussed this aspect of it, but good news or good tidings is is generally news about a king. It's saying a king is born, a king has been put on the throne, uh, the king is victorious in battle, and the word used in Hebrew, which is although the the book of Luke was probably originally written in Greek, um, Zacharias would have would have experienced this or at least reported it, talked to it about his friends. He would have done that in Hebrew. So these things were experienced in Hebrew, and this the word that would have been used was mebaser, which is the messenger, the holy messenger that brings good tidings. One word, meaning all of those things, right? A messenger bringing good tidings about a king. And that word became the word that we know today as gospel. So here is a uh, an angel appearing in the temple to to a priest. He's in there by himself because no one else is allowed to go in. And he's he's given this this glad tidings. He's given the gospel. And what is his response? You know, he's so he's first of all the angels rejoicing in front of him and saying, "Look at all these good things. You know, you're finally going to have a child. Your your wife will conceive." And uh, Zacharias has a reaction where he's he says, "Okay, now we're, we're gonna we're gonna take this from two different sides." The, he he doesn't believe the angel. And so the angel punishes him, or so it seems from our account, and he says, okay, because you haven't believed me, here am I, I'm Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God. Do you not understand the blessing that you're getting right now? Because you haven't believed me, you're going to be struck dumb until everything I just told you comes true. Um, now, we read a little closer and we read, what did, what did Zacharias even do? All, in what way did he question this? He, he just said, okay, uh... How am I going to know this is going to happen? Because uh, I don't know if you know this, but I'm super old and my wife is super old. So help me out here, right? You don't know the exact tone that he took. We can just we can just read the words that we have. But that's how I read this, this passage is he says, how will I know that these things will be so? He's not saying, I don't believe you. Or, and he's not saying, uh, you know, I don't respect your words. He's just saying, can you can you help me believe this? And uh, Gabriel gives him a reaction, which is, you're going to be struck dumb. Now, how long is he struck dumb for? How long does he have to wait for these things to be fulfilled? Well, from the from the remaining parts of this story, we can surmise that his wife is not yet pregnant, and he's not even around his wife. He doesn't live with her. He lives. She lives in one of the towns, the hill towns of Judah, as it's described later. And uh, and he's in the temple in Jerusalem, so a few miles from home, not too far away, but he's not going there every night. And he's probably staying away from his wife because he has to be ritually pure to serve in the temple. So his time, he has to remain in the temple. He, he's been struck dumb at this point. He comes out of the temple and everyone's worried about him because he's been in there so long. And they're worried for a very legitimate reason. Which, in if in case you didn't know this, when the on the day of atonement, when the high priest goes into the holy of holies, he the the tradition was he'd actually have a rope attached to his belt, because if he should die, because he's in any way impure, when he goes into the holy of holies, no one can go in and get the body, and to further complicate things, a dead body is something that would make someone ritually impure. So anyone going in to collect the body would also be struck dead. It would almost be like being electrocuted by grabbing onto somebody who was touching an electrical source, right? You touch that dead body to remove it, and you're you're impure, and then you're in the temple impure, and you're struck dead. So these, these high priests would go into the 
the Holy of Holies with a rope attached to their belt. And if anything happened to them, they could be pulled out by, by people outside of the temple who didn't then have to enter the temple in an impure state or become in an impure state. So they're worried outside that, that no, none of them can go in and actually fetch the body. And uh, because this wasn't the Day of Atonement, presumably, or maybe uh, Zacharias wasn't the high priest, he didn't have a rope attached to him. So they're concerned about more than just, you know, Zechariah. They're concerned about themselves. Are we, is there going to be a dead body in the temple? And that would not be okay. But finally, Zechariah emerges and he, and he makes, him known, makes it known by use of gestures that uh, he's received a vision. And then uh, he goes home, he tells his wife, or we don't know, sorry, he doesn't tell his wife, but he may have written her a, uh, a message or maybe he couldn't. Maybe she wasn't literate and he was. We, we learned later that he was, he at least was able to write, but maybe she was, maybe she wasn't. She probably was. Um, he goes home and his wife conceives. And um, then after nine months or thereabouts, a, a baby is born. And at the christening, uh, everyone wants to name the child after Zacharias. And he writes down, his name is John. And as soon as he does that, uh, then his mouth is open and he praises God. We're going to go back over some elements of this and, and analyze them. But um, the first thing we want to do, I want to point out, is all the similarities. So what is Luke trying to accomplish by relating this story? And all of the similarities that exist between Zacharias and Elizabeth and Abraham and Sarah. So if you go back to Gen- Genesis chapter 18 and you read about how Abraham is given the news, oh, your wife, your wife, Sarah, is going to have a child, and this is the child of the covenant, right? It's the same message. You're, you're going to have a blessed child. And uh, Abraham's reaction is similar. He says, you know, my wife is old and in, in the Genesis account, it's not uh, the father, but the mother. She overhears this from inside the tent. There's visitors to Abraham giving him this message, and she overhears it from inside of the tent. And she laughs, but she laughs within herself. And the angel rebukes her and says, why are you laughing? And she says, oh, you know, I didn't laugh. And some translations have it as she lied and said, I didn't laugh. And the angel says, no, I know you, I know you laughed. And it's not, and basically the implication is it's not okay that you did not receive my word. So the word of this uh, miraculous birth is not believed when it's first received in either the case of Abraham and Sarah or of Zacharias and Elizabeth. And um, what, why, why would Luke go to such lengths to draw this parallel? And or why would God make these situations so similar? Why would he choose to work through such similar people? So it seems like a lot of people think or say that Luke is writing to a Gentile audience. But over and over again, Luke draws these parallels to the Old Testament. This is the first one, where he's showing that uh, just just like God could bring the entire people of Abraham from what seemed to be a barren place, which is similar to the theme that Matthew developed about uh, creation, right? God, Jesus is a creation of the Spirit, in this place that was lifeless, the, the womb of a virgin. Um, the, that was the same message with, the, with Sarah's conception of Isaac. And now it's the same message with Elizabeth's conception of John the Baptist, which is that God is capable of bringing life to these barren places. 
And then, so that's that's one message. Number two, that this is the beginning of something just like the the conception of Isaac was the beginning of the people of Abraham. This is the beginning of a new people of God that have a system of beliefs that is going to be a blessing to everyone around them. What were the what were the promises made to Abraham and how did they get fulfilled through his descendants? We'll talk about that in just a few just a few minutes, but uh, secondly, so we've looked at this uh, curse put on on Zacharias from one side, which is from Gabriel's point of view, or from, uh, sorry, from from Zacharias's point of view, which is why why was that necessary? All I did was ask a simple question. Now let's look at it from Gabriel's point of view, which is, um, first of all, we can presume that Zacharias and Elizabeth were praying for many years, just like I, uh, Abraham and Sarah. They're praying for many years that this in the case of Abraham and Sarah, they'd been given a covenant that they would have a child. But in the case of Zacharias and Elizabeth, maybe they had, maybe they haven't. But here comes this angel that he is, number one, he's an angel, a glorious heavenly being. Number two, he's in the temple. And number three, he's giving Zacharias news that something that has definitely, that Zacharias has definitely been praying for for decades is finally going to come to pass. And Zacharias's first reaction was, instead of rejoicing, uh, disbelief. And he's worried about, you know, I don't want to believe this without testing it. And because of that, and, and it's it's interesting, the, the penalty for that disbelief was not, okay, I'm going to take the blessing away. The penalty was, you don't get to talk for a while. And think about what that symbolizes, right? You, uh, you're not willing to rejoice when God answers your prayers. And so I'm going, to, I'm going to make it so that you are silent for a time. Think about that. what that would mean in our lives, right? We, we're praying for a blessing and that blessing comes along. How often do we recognize, I've, I've seen this in my own life, uh, that a blessing I've been praying for for a long time starts coming around. And it may be that I've been praying for it for so long and it's happening so gradually that I don't recognize God's hand in it. And in what ways might God be wanting to say to me, all right, if you can't recognize this, if you don't believe that my hand is is operating in your life, then I'm going to make it so that you're silent for a while. You're going to have to shut up and listen to me for a while so that uh, you can see my hand in this. And until these things are fulfilled... And I don't know what that silence means, right? Maybe it's going to be self-imposed. But I think there's an interesting lesson for all of us in what happened to Zacharias. Secondly, what would have Zacharias done had he been able to speak? Is it possible he would have come out and said, you know, I had this vision, but I'm not sure because I'm so old and my wife is already, uh, it's uh, as they put it in the scriptures, it's ceased to be with her the way it is with women. Is it possible that he would have endangered his blessing by expressing those doubts to other people and that Gabriel was protecting him by silencing him? Anyway, some interesting things to think about there. But um, one of the one of the biggest lessons that I take from what happened to Zacharias is that failure to rejoice when God sends an asked for blessing, it drew a penalty. And that penalty in this case was enforced silence for a little season. And so there could be a, a symbolism in that. Now, Elizabeth, his wife, we don't have evidence that she's given a, a vision at, at this time. 
But this is when Gabriel now appears to Mary. And his, this vision of Mary, of an, of an angel appearing to her, is sort of unique in all the visions of Scripture, because normally the, the angel appears and says, hey, look, you need to either repent or you need to be purified, right? The, what, do, what do the theophanies look like in the Old Testament? These prophets, they feel unworthy, and, um, or the, they have the wrong reaction when they see the angel, and then the angel tells them how they can get themselves into shape to hear the message. There's none of that with Gabriel and Mary. The first thing Gabriel says is, is are words of praise to Mary. Blessed are you among women. He, it's almost like Gabriel feels like he's, he's privileged to be in Mary's mere presence. And I just found that so fascinating looking at this with fresh eyes. I thought, you, you don't see angels show up and, and it's the, you often see angels show up and the person tries to worship the angel. And because the angel is there under what's called divine investiture of authority they're taking on the perhaps the voice of the words of god and then people start to worship them and the angels say oh no don't worship me i'm mess i'm a messenger so the 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 reaction is normally the person worshiping the angel and yet here's the angel showing up to mary and showing her such reverence i mean it is absolute reverence that he shows to mary and says you know all the all the generations of the world are going to call you blessed. And he's just rejoicing over the blessing that Mary's going to have. And what is Mary thinking during all of this? Right? So what he says is what's going to happen to you is you're going to bear a child. And she says, okay, um, how, how's that going to happen? Because I don't, I've, I don't have, uh, I don't know a man. In other words, I'm not sexually active. I'm not married. I don't, and, and Gabriel lets her know that's partly the idea that uh, this has to be a miracle. It can't, you, we couldn't choose somebody who was already a mother, who was already married. We had to choose somebody in a premarital state. We had to choose a virgin. And Mary's thinking, I can guess, this is, this is not out of any scriptural account, but we can guess what Mary's thinking. She's thinking, wow, so before I'm officially married to my husband, I'm going to be pregnant and have a child and everyone's going to know. And what is that going to do to my life? What, what course will my life take now? And absolutely in a justified way, she's thinking, this is, this has now changed the course of my life. Here's this angel telling me all this blessed things are going to happen, but it means the destruction of my reputation. I'm going to be humiliated. Joseph is going to be humiliated. Joseph is not going to trust me. He's going to be heartbroken and my parents are going to think that I have broken everything they ever taught me and gone against those things and betrayed them. And my child will grow up with this stigma of illegitimacy. And she's, she's mourning, I can imagine at least, she's mourning the loss of all the dreams she had for being a virtuous woman. And... Uh, her whole life now is the course of her entire life has changed in one moment. And that's why to me, uh, I, as I read this, this time, I, it's real. I mean, I've, I've kind of thought these things before, but all of this stuff was really sinking into me when I read this, this time I'm thinking she had to be just, just beside herself with the, the failure or seeing the evaporation of all of her hopes and expectations for her future and thinking, 
uh, yeah, God is asking me to do this. He's asking me to sacrifice my good name and the hopes that everyone has put in me and the perception of everyone around me that I'm a righteous and virtuous woman. He's asking me to put all that aside to bring a great blessing into the world. And that's why her, her response is so wonderful and so amazing. It is, behold the handmaiden of the Lord. Now, handmaiden means, uh, it's the female version of the word bond slave. And so it kind of means my, the female slave or your, your indentured servant, someone that you have power to command. Behold, the handmaiden of the Lord, I will do whatever God commands. So my will is totally subject to his will. Be it unto me according to thy word. Now, um, it's very significant that even in this moment, or perhaps especially in this moment, when she receives the greatest of callings, perhaps, that a mortal has received or very close to it, her agency was still paramount. She had to choose it. She had to say to the angel, yes, I accept what you have presented me. And there's none of the evidence of of Zechariah's reaction, which was, um, I'm not sure I believe you. Can you give me a sign? Um, she believes it, and she accepts all the consequences with her first reaction, rather than having to be talked into it. Now, this is something you can't get across to a child, right? You teach a child about the birth of Jesus Christ, and you start in Luke chapter 2, because how do you explain that a teenage girl is learned has just learned that she's going to have a, an unwed pregnancy, and all the consequences that go with that, and she's accepted it willingly in order to give birth to God himself. It's, it's difficult for a child to understand all the implications of that. It's, it, it's only when you have experienced, maybe you've known somebody that has been through this process, that uh, you can understand everything that she felt in that moment. Now, one of the things we know about Jesus is that he didn't Uh, He didn't know everything at the start. Uh, The reason I say that is, in the book of Hebrews, it's explained that uh, though he were a son, first it talks about Jesus going from grace to grace, and then it says, though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. So in other words, Jesus didn't know everything at the beginning. He didn't even know obedience perfectly at the start, but he learned it by the things he suffered. And the insight I had was, here's Jesus, here is Mary showing that she is capable of sacrificing everything she thought her life was going to be in order to accomplish an even greater work that God has for her to do. And she says, in essence, she says, not my will but thine be done to the angel Gabriel. And then we have an account later in the scriptures that Jesus learned obedience by the things he suffered. And one of the things that Jesus suffered was the, the suffering of being perceived as an illegitimate child. And the question arose in my mind, I don't know the answer. Did Jesus learn the attitude that he had in the Garden of Gethsemane, when, which enabled him to say, not, you know, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Did he learn that attitude from his mother? And did he learn it from, was part of the things that he suffered to learn this lesson 
the the suffering of being thought and, and, and perhaps ridiculed as an illegitimate child or a child conceived out of wedlock even if his parents later married. Uh, undoubtedly, Jesus suffered that. There, there doesn't seem to be much doubt because even though Mary would find over the course of her lifetime, would find some people to believe that Jesus was the child of, the, of God himself, conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost, everyone didn't believe that, and certainly very few believed that at the beginning. Joseph believed it after having a heavenly visitation. But, but Mary paid a fantastic price, and her attitude, I think, I think as much as Jesus was an example to all of us, Mary holds a very uh, revered place in history as being a, an example to Jesus Christ. And it's very possible that he learned, in my mind, it's very plausible that, she, that he learned his attitude, perhaps even the most important attitude in all of human history, from his mother. And we, we can see at least, we can see the, the indications of it here. And that is just a staggering fact about any person. Now, Gabriel, to prove his words, he says to Mary, your, your cousin meaning your relative, your relative Elizabeth has also conceived. So uh, where she was barren, she's also in her sixth month of pregnancy. And then uh, almost immediately after, Mary goes to visit her. This is, this is an amazing passage of scripture as well. Now, uh, Elizabeth greets, first thing that happens is John the Baptist is in the womb and he just does, he leaps for joy and Elizabeth notices and she's immediately, the spirit just overtakes her and she says the same thing to Mary that, that Gabriel said, blessed art thou among women. I can't believe I'm in your presence. Uh, I, I, I know now through the spirit, I know exactly what you've been called to do and I'm amazed. I'm dumbfounded. I'm dumbfounded. I revere you. And, um, one of the things that Elizabeth says is, Blessed is she that believed. This is verse 45 of Luke chapter, chapter 1. Uh, be, because God is going to fulfill everything that, that you were promised, um, you know, blessed is she that believed. And the point, it, there's a stark contrast drawn there between Zechariah having received word from Gabriel and didn't believe, and Mary who instantly believed. So I think that's why uh, Elizabeth's reaction is recorded here. But then in we have a couple of uh, examples of poetry in this chapter, and one is right here in verses 46 through 55, which is what I call the Psalm of Mary, and I imagine other people have called this as well. But you should definitely read this as poetry. And I'm going to read this. I'm going to read all these verses to you. So uh, first, Elizabeth said, Blessed is she that believed. And Mary said, My soul doth magnify the Lord. My spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior, for he hath regarded the low estate of his handmaiden. For behold, from henceforth all generations shall call me blessed. For he that is mighty hath done to me great things, and holy is his name. And his mercy is on them that fear him from generation to generation. He hath showed strength with his arm. He hath scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He hath put down the mighty from their seats and exalted them of low degree. He hath filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he hath sent away, he hath sent empty away. He hath holpen or helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spake to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever. So that's Mary's prayer, her psalm, that she says extemporaneously when presented with Elizabeth's reaction. 
First thing we learn from this is that Mary is very well versed in the scriptures, if she could come up with this thing right off the top of her head. Secondly, Mary, very, Mary now starts to see that her holy calling isn't just a burden. Uh, perhaps she's, perhaps I'm misreading this, but this is the way I'm reading this, that um, she would, it would have been very apparent to her all the costs that would go with this. But now with, with Elizabeth's reaction, she sees, oh, not everyone is going to treat me as a pariah. There will be some people for whom I, they see what I really am, which is the mother of the Son of God. And that is really something special. And what a privilege it is. And in verse 48, she says, she rejoices in this. She says, He hath regarded the low estate of his handmaiden. For behold, from henceforth, all generations shall call me blessed. So she recognizes that perhaps the people that she knows will be disappointed. And perhaps there will be a lot of people that she experiences in her life will have the wrong impression of her. But everyone who believes, her son is going to be God himself, and everyone who believes in him is going to recognize what an amazing contribution she made. And that is, in fact, what happened. And she, this is where she first recognizes this is a cause for rejoicing as well as sorrow. Um, and there's more she says. I, I wish we had time to go over everything that she says in her psalm. But um, then it talks about, so she, she visits for a time. She actually remains with Elizabeth for three months. And then... Uh, John the Baptist is born, and when uh, and we, we talked a little bit about how that story unfolds, and when Zacharias writes, you know, don't know, don't name my child after me, the angel told me his name is John, and then his mouth is open, and then he does a similar thing that Mary did. He immediately is moved upon by the Spirit, and he utters the Psalm of Zacharias, which is also poetry, and this this goes through the end of the the end of the chapter. And he says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people, hath raised up an horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers, and to remember his holy, name, his holy covenant, the oath which he sware to our father Abraham, that he would grant unto us, that we, being delivered out of the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And he keeps going. But uh, if you notice, both Mary and Zacharias mention the promise made to Abraham. So we, we mentioned what the promises were, the, the, the different covenants in the Old Testament. One of those was the promise made to Abraham. They both have different interpretations on what that promise is. So the question I asked earlier was, what is the New Testament? Um, and we're going to read, we're going to read one last passage and that's in the book of Jeremiah chapter 31 and, uh, start in verse 31. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant. Now, if you know the meaning of the word Testament, it's the same as the word covenant. So this is a little bit of foreshadowing again. And we talked about this in, when we studied, uh, Jer- Jeremiah, we talked about this very passage five or six weeks ago. Um, and, and its implications in the New Testament. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was an husband unto them, saith the Lord. So God's saying, it's not the Old 
Testament. It's not the Old Covenant. This is this is one of the Old Testament evidences that there's more to come after these scriptures, right? This is the fact that this is one of these cliffhangers that is just left dangling for centuries that needs to be taken up by some later work or some later prophet. He's saying it's not it's not according to the Old Testament. It's not according to the law of Moses even. Verse 33, but this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. There is, in my experience, in my limited learning and understanding, there is no verse or passage that more directly presages the existence of the New Testament than this passage in Jeremiah, which is um, so reminiscent when, when Christ says, Behold the New Testament, which is uh, to, for that you will remember the shedding of my blood. He is talking about the sacrament, and here is Jeremiah saying, uh, the days will come when I will make a new covenant, and I'm going to write my law on your inward parts. In other words, you'll always remember me, and um, and I will be your God. You, you will have my spirit to be with you, and you're going to be my people. And here's something interesting. They will teach no more every man his neighbor saying, know the Lord, because everybody's already going to know me. In other words, we'll all have the responsibility for our own learning. Isn't this fascinating to be, uh, I, I feel like it's really fascinating to be making this pronouncement on the very day when we, we started learning, when the title of the Sunday school lesson was, we're all responsible for our own learning. But the, the most important fulfillment of this prophecy was at the birth of Jesus Christ, that, that God started making a new covenant, a new testament with the house of Israel. So the Old Testament was, here's my law, here's my Torah, you're going to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And now here in the book of Jeremiah is where God is saying, this is my answer. Like I said, there are, there are probably a dozen really good, really legitimate answers to the question, what is the New Testament? But here's my answer, that... Jeremiah is prophesying, I'm going to make a new covenant one day, and I'm going to write the law on their hearts. I'm not going to fail again. The next time I set my hand to bring a people unto me, I'm going to succeed. And I'm going to do it because they're going to choose to obey my covenant. They're going to, they're going to obey my commandments. They're going to pray unto me. They're going to meet regularly and renew those covenants, and they're going to have my spirit to be with them. Um, this is a this is a prophecy foretelling the institution of the sacrament. It's a prophecy foretelling the atonement. It's the it's a prophecy foretelling that Jesus Christ can actually save people rather than just trying to save people and failing. So often, quite often in the scripture, or quite often in modern scholarship, Luke is characterized as a Gentile convert writing to convert a, primar- a primarily Gentile audience, uh, and if so he is certainly giving that Gentile audience a solid foundation in the, the culture, the scriptural history, the knowledge of the Hebrew Old Testament and in the Judaism on which to be, uh, uh, in the Judaism of Jesus on which those converts can base their faith. 
So I don't know whether that's accurate or not, but uh, in any case, it's very important to each of the writers of, of all four Gospels that uh, we understand, all of us, anyone reading the about the life of Christ, understand that he is the fulfillment of the promises of God since the time the world began. And how much we have to learn from those that surrounded him, from, from Mary and from Zacharias and from Elizabeth and from the, the prophets that testified of him, and how much we have to learn from Christ himself, as we'll discover as we'd study the New Testament. But for now, I'd leave these messages with you, and I hope you felt the Spirit as I have. There, there is no more important topic that we could discuss than the things that we can learn from Jesus Christ and how he is truly the fulfillment of God's promise. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt with bumper music by Kendra Lowe. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.